This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. The catalogue for the 2020 Classic Yearling Sale is now available. In total, 808 yearlings have been catalogued over three days, 613 in Book 1, 195 in the Highway Session. Book 1 will take place on Sunday, February the 9th, Monday the 10th and the morning of the 11th, with the Highway Session beginning as soon as Book 1 is completed. The Classic Sale has produced eight Group 1 winners since 2018, including four Group 1 winning two-year-olds or three-year-olds in Sydney and Melbourne. Of the 808 lots catalogued, 734 are Bob's eligible. To request a catalogue, email catalogue at inglis.com.au or call 9399-7999. Catalogues are also available for the Inglis Premier Sale in Melbourne, March the 1st to March the 3rd. The 2020 Inglis Yearling Sale Round is about to begin. There was a time when Sydney racetracks abounded with larger-than-life characters. Three or four decades back, you could have assembled enough colourful players to form the cast for a production of Guys and Dolls. Most of those characters are gone. Today's racetracks are attended by young patrons looking for a day out and a few drinks and deadly serious stern-faced punters armed with an overload of computer-driven data searching for winners at agreeable odds. If you had to nominate a Sydney racing identity who was a throwback to the 1950s and 1960s, you'd plump for owner, breeder, punter and businessman Max Whitby. This man's background is the stuff best-selling books and movie scripts are made of. Today, Max is managing director of his own company, Propex Derivatives, which operates in Sydney and on the Gold Coast and in Singapore. Propex is a proprietary trading firm which provides capital for established traders in futures, equities, foreign exchange and commodities. It's a big business with a big risk factor, but he runs it expertly. How Max got to be where he is today from his humble beginnings at Bangalore on the New South Wales Northern Rivers makes for a very good story. In recent history, his name has figured prominently among the Everest slot holders. He and partners have so far been represented by Vega Magic, Graf and Sunlight. No luck so far, but they're already working on 2020. Stand by for a full review of the amazing adventures of Max Whitby. He's online to talk to me now. Max, really great to catch up. Thanks for your time. Hello, John. That was a very flattering introduction, mate. And it's all true. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now, Max, Propex Derivatives, it's a mouthful, but tell me about the company. You're always on the lookout for traders who know what they're doing. John, uh, we're in our 14th year, and uh, it uh, morphed out of a company called LT Futures Brokers, which mm-hmm. was a similar type of business, but in a different era. And that era was open outcry on the trading floor when we had trading floors around the world to trade futures. 
like the stock exchange used to have a trading floor. Mm. And subsequently, the floor closed in Australia and I made a decision to move into electronic trading and the instrument I saw best for that was proprietary trading. Mm. And proprietary trading is simply traders use my capital, where the previous company, Key traders put their own capital up and I guaranteed the performance of their accounts. Mm. So the question, PropEx is a firm that has historically trained, found, uh, promoted and endorsed young traders and some senior traders from the old open outcry era mm. of the Sydney Futures Exchange. It's a totally different business in 2020, 2017, 18, 19 than it was prior to that because of different opportunities around the world. But basically, it ain't as much fun as it used to be. Is that right? That's right. You've started a brand new venture called EnviroBank Recycling. Now, this provides litter solutions for beverage, and it's all about the recovery of beverage containers. EnviroBank uh, is in its seventh year. In this country, one of the great frustrations for for an average Aussie or not maybe maybe not, but a businessman is federalism. And every state has a different name and a different workload, a different legislation, etc. We've endeavoured to find a national solution for recycling. And recycling, yes, is plastic, glass and aluminium. There's been a system in place in South Australia for over 40 years but no other state has ever embraced it. You and I, at our age, Johnny, will remember going to the corner store and cashing in your Coke bottles or your lemonade or whatever the case may be to buy your lollies, etc. That was a smaller type system. But that was a form of recycling because the bottlers would get their bottles back and then they'd refill them and they'd sell them again. Mm. But, but the recycling concept where uh, basically we started in the Northern Territory, it was the first place to embrace it. It's quite showed a lot of initiative up there, and we're very very established and very successful in the Northern Territory. But uh, and the, the volumes there are quite significant. But in latter uh, period of time, we went into South Australia to try and reinvigorate its old established system, which we've done. There's plenty more work to be done down there. Queensland came online 18 months, two years ago, and that's going like gangbusters up there. Mm. Our state, New South Wales, has been very, very hard to crack. It's because you have to make different applications. You would think uniformity, as I said before, would be the key to this. It should be the same system all around the country. Walk in, get your money, get your deposit, have electronically processed. No, no, every state's different, as I said before. It is a real pain in the ass. to be quite honest with you. <laughs> can, can you be more specific? <laughs> So we've got, you know, we've got different licences and different legislations and it shouldn't be like that, but it is, you know, for a young country in relative terms like Australia, I don't know why we make it so complicated, duplication of bureaucracy, duplication of philosophy, it's crazy stuff, you know. NRMA's called something in New South Wales and it's called Queensland Roads or some bloody thing up there, so I don't know. It's one of those great frustrations of business, but... And in my latter years, it's just one of those things you do, Johnny, just move on. <laughs> you're, getting, you're getting old and cranky. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> now, 
Now, Max, of all your business ventures, none gives you more pleasure than the development of your syndication arm known as My Runners. Now, you kick this one off in collaboration with your good friend Stephen Brown, and currently you've got very close to 5,000 new owners involved in young horses, and Racing Queensland have been very good, Max. They've actually partnered with you. Johnny, uh, you know, in life you do a lot of things and without going over the top, the thing is that some people are givers and some people are takers. And the fact is I've given a lot to racing. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're on boards or for owners' associations or breed association, whatever the case be, it's all voluntary. But you're trying to do something good for the business. And the racing business, it's got all every walk of life as well, you know, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a give business and it's a bigger take business. But... I found a, a vehicle in recent years that we established called My Runners, as you've identified, MI Runners, which has been, I can only describe it as super successful. And what we've done is we're trying to find an opportunity for the little guy to get into racing. I'll start, I'll preface everything by saying, oh, there's no money in it, Johnny. Mm. <laughs> there's not a quid in it. I can give, it, give you that tip straight up. Yeah, the fact is that, we can find uh, owners through 150 or 180 or 135 dollars in that buys them into a horse, and with a monthly fee of 10, 15, 20 dollars a month, and that gives them a hair of a horse going forward. And the reception from the man on the street is quite phenomenal. Mm. I'm amazed that it hasn't been done before. I think there was a higher degree of uh, expectations of earning with syndicates, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This is the same concept as a syndicate, but this is for the mass market. Yeah. And we're, where we have thirteen or fourteen or fifteen, currently we're in the process of picking a couple up here, and we're having a look in New Zealand this week as well for the Caracas sales. Mm. We're looking for good bred horses. Very important. Don't pay stupid prices because at the end of the day. You can look at me as the underwriter of the success or failure of the, us being able to sell those horses. So consequently, I could easily have another 15, 20 horses in my, on my books, which I don't need at any, at any practical time. But the, the bottom line is we find quality stock, well-bred, but important in my world, and in, this, in the three, four, five thousand owners we're establishing or established, mm. is good communication from the trainer. It is essential in this modern age, that the the owner or the or as in any business in any business communication is essential, and so we only go to the top trainers, mm. and they've got to have the top levels of communication. When you purchased your first three year Everest slot package, you did so with two partners to start with. Yes, it started. Uh, I like the concept from kickoff. There was a lot of knockers. I didn't find it that strange. I thought the figure, the dollar figure, was a bit strange. <laughs> had to write a check for one point eight million mm. and, and uh, six hundred a year for a three year obligation. And uh, I took the journey. I do race with a great mate and a good, very successful businessman, stroke horse owner Neil Werrett, as in Black Caviar. Neil Werrett. Yep. He's a lovely, lovely bloke. You couldn't, you wouldn't meet a nicer man in social, private, family, the whole thing. And we just hit, we've hit it off pretty great. 
So I was talking to him, I said, I'm going to have a look at this thing. And he said, well, I'll be in. And uh, basically, Neil and I kicked off very early. I, you know, as I said, I found it as a concept, but everyone else wanted it as well. But the bottom line, went into business with Neil. Mm. Then he said, oh, one of my black caviar mates, uh, slot holders, can he go in? I'm going, okay, right, So mm. right, there's three. And then another guy comes in to Neil and goes, he's in the construction business and goes, uh, can I get a bit of that? And I'm going, oh, here we go. So I've ended up with three partners. <laughs> and that will apply again this year? Yes. So we've maintained the same. The four of us have been in business from kickoff. And as you highlighted, uh, three, three, three years and uh, ran second, ran fifth and ran second last. So <laughs> there's room for improvement, mate. <laughs> now, Max, you're the man to answer this question. There is great curiosity in the racing world as to how negotiations are executed between slot holders and horse owners. Is it as simple as splitting the prize money 50-50 or is it more complicated than that? Well, it depends who you're dealing with, John, and sometimes but some, some parties make it more complicated than it has to be. It was very clear from kickoff what the what the deal was. As a slot holder, holder, you're one of 12 and you're entitled to do put your own horse in the race or do a deal with an owner of a horse that would be suitable. In now three years, we wouldn't believe it or not, between Neil and my stock, we, don't, we haven't had a capable or highly skilled horse enough to enter the, our own run. Uh, consequently, we've had to go and do deals with owners prominent and small that have a good quality horse that would suit the Everest model. Mm. So, specifically to answer your question, if John Tapp owns a good horse and Max Whitby has a slot, you and I have to do a deal. Yeah. And first year was very rough because we were all sort of, it's like a, a bit of a sparring match. Round one or two was like who's going to get on top and who's, who's got the entitlement. But the basically... 50-50 deal with an owner, and then you've got to negotiate things down like everything from jockey, colours, prize money, e.g. Uh, trophy, mm. and there's about five components to it, Johnny. But basically, down the middle, best deal. How do you how do you carve up a $450,000 trophy? I told my blokes first year, I'll take a claw hammer to it to get those diamonds out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but consequently, uh, normally if there's women involved, like last year's horse, Sunlight, there was a lady syndicate. Of course, uh, there's no way in the world you're going to get a diamond trophy off those lasses. So no. we didn't even attempt to do a deal on the trophy. You do miniatures and the replicas, as you well know, in racing, but it wouldn't be the same as like my Cox Plate. You know, I wish no. it was original, but it's as good as the Cox Plate. It stands in pride of place in my my the study. Yeah. So 50-50 down the line, John, yes, no question about it. Sometimes it's been a little bit harder. Third year was a little bit harder. They were good people. Mm. Tony McAvoy handled his end very well, and he did a good job with the horse. Which is, well, still scratching my head what happened at the sunlight last year, but that's another story. Um, but he was good. The year before, uh, Alan Bell, Graf, great bloke, terrific, real solid business guy, didn't bump, didn't push, just said, what's your deal, what do you want to do? And uh, the year prior to that was a very tough negotiation first year with um, Vega Magic out of Western Australia, and that was a little bit more tedious and tentative, to say the least. Mm. So, but anyway, I'll repeat, third time, 50-50, best deal. 
This year, a bit different. We think we've got finally got a horse in our system, Neil and my system, that may come up. But far too early to speculate on that. A lot of water under the bridge yet. The Max Whitby story began in that lovely little township of Bangalore on the north coast where you grew up. You were reared by your grandparents, Max, and one of your fondest memories is just sitting in the back of your granddad's bread truck as he made deliveries in the local community. You never forget things like that. <laughs> no, you don't, mate. You don't. He went through um, three, three forms of um, uh, transport, foot, horse and truck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just remember the horse because they did the deliveries around town by horse in a sulky. And uh, maybe that was my first touch to horses, but I don't know. But, uh, yeah, my grandfather, Harry Clark, was a very interesting man, um, did a lot for me. Obviously, he had a sort of a rough old start. And subsequently, um, they raised me until I was about four years old. That didn't sound a lot, but the condition of my fostering was that I, do, I could always and should always have my holidays with uh, uh, any bloodline. Mm. So always a condition when I was farmed around and did my stints in Sydney was I could always have my holidays, school holidays with my grandparents. So no doubt about it, they were very endearing and a great that's a great exposure to country life as a young kid growing up, close to Byron Bay, you learnt to surf, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So great life and that was a good opportunity which gave me the taste of the bush. There's no doubt about that. Even though it was dairy country when I was a kid, uh, it's, a, it's a big tourist centre now, et cetera. Born in Bangalore, hostels have been closed for 40 years, I suppose. So it's a different town. It's, um, it's you know, it's well received, I must say. You say to people who are born in Bangalore, and it's, oh, what a beautiful place. And it is and was mm. a beautiful place. Yep. School wasn't one of your favourite places, and you made good your escape at age 14 and a half. Now, did that, one, yeah, did that education do anything at all to shape your destiny? Uh, sport. Yeah. Sport. You know, uh, interest in sport, I think every young kid, I thought I was, I started out like I was, I think I had some some sort of uh, natural ability because I was going pretty good there for a while and then hit a bad spot at late primary school and uh, some of the social stuff at home, et cetera, et cetera, and it set me on the wrong wrong track and hit high school and just sort of struggled through and a condition of my, um, uh, conditions of uh, my um fostering was that I could leave school at 14 and a half and I did it 14 and a half in one minute, I say. <laughs> <laughs> I hit the road real quick. You got a job as a jackaroo at Amaru Station near Willow Tree. Well and researched, Johnny. Well researched. That's yeah. right, Amaru at the back of Willow Tree, yep. Yeah, you work with Santa Gertrudis cattle. I don't know Correct. anything about cattle, Max, but I it's a crossbreed, isn't it, the Santa Gertrudis? It is, mate, with a with a Hereford and Brahmin. You know, the Brahmin with the big big uh, lumps on their neck. Very mm. very dry country type cattle. But the Hereford, of course, are very there's many crosses in them now these days, but you know, that was the original. Nineteen sixty seven and Amaru Station ask you to look after some of their cattle at the Sydney Royal which brought you to the big smoke for the first time. Now, this is yes. a good yarn. They arranged for another bloke to clean up the dung and make sure they were clean and tidy, 
and you were not happy with the job that other bloke was doing. Right. Now, you knew he worked nights at the Texas Tavern at King's Cross and you went there with the principal aim of belting him in the mouth. Correct. <laughs> That's right, can't isn't deny it? it? Can't deny it. I was going to knock him on his ass. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> now, the Texas Tavern, which is, I think, now a Greek restaurant. It's on the corner. It's a big, still a big same building, 150-room hotel it was with five restaurants, uh, three restaurants and five bars. Now it's uh, just a hotel. and But that corner restaurant mm-hmm. is now a famous Sydney Greek restaurant called the Apollo. Yeah. A you wouldn't worry, but you go in the Apollo, it's got the same fittings that we put in in 19, oh, bloody, 68, I reckon, 69. Uh, yeah. All they did was pull the rafters out and expose the old beam and whitewash it. I thought, bloody hell. Anyway, that's another story. <laughs> but you can't Matt, get in the joint. No, oh, no, very popular. The yeah. Texas Tavern was owned by an American man called Bernie Houghton who was destined to have an enormous impact on your life. Now, the night you walked in to belt that bloke in the mouth, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, he was sitting having a drink and uh, he, he cracked a conversation with you, didn't he? Basically, he said oh, there was a bit of a ruckus out the back because I'm trying to find that my mate was working in the kitchen apparently. He was just, the restaurants used to close between three and six in those days of the, and it was in, around that afternoon and I went in looking for him, et cetera, and there was three blokes at the bar who turned out to be, my, you know, a great mentor in life and two of my best buddies, both passed now. Mm-hmm. That's all, all three passed, actually. But anyway, uh, I said, they said, oh, we're closed. And I went, well, I'm looking for a bloke to da-da-da. And he goes, uh, oh, that's that Aussie bloke working in the kitchen. They were three yanks. So I've gone down and I started, I couldn't find my way to the kitchen. It wasn't that big a restaurant, but you don't know your way around. You know, you're walking into a nightclub downstairs, you know, blah, whatever. Mm-hmm. Anyway, night thing out to me, mate, come out here, you bastard. Come here, and <laughs> and so two of these guys, not Bernie, these two guys, one was an ex-colonel in the U.S. Marines and the other guy was a pretty pretty subsequent uh, ex-aviator, mm. Yankees. Anyway, they pull me off. What are you doing? What are you doing? And Nigel's coming around the corner. I've let me expose his name. Anyway, he's coming around the corner and uh, then Bernie's come up and said, this guy's got some spunk, basically. Give him a job. Yeah. And, I, and that was all how it started. I went, I went back. Finished out there pretty quickly and back that night and I was washing dishes that night in the Texas Tavern. That's how my catering life started and yeah. my new new phase in life, yes. I read a quote somewhere which is attributable to you concerning Bernie Houghton and uh, I really liked it. In describing Bernie Houghton, the man, at around that time when you met him, you said he was a collector of lost souls. Correct. And these two guys with with him at the bar that came out to pull me back, they were part of a gang of five of us, and we were all guys lost in direction in life. And Bernie definitely was a mentor to all of us. But to me, as an Aussie, I was in a world of international, ultimately intrigue, nightclub life, King's Cross. You know, I, was, I, always looked, I always say I was like the, the clowns at Luna Park when you put the, the balls down their throat, like they're turning my head with my eyes open <laughs> my mouth open. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> Max, we'll just pause for a moment to clear a commitment on the podcast. Back shortly. Of all the new initiatives introduced in recent years by Racing New South Wales, none have been more widely acclaimed than the weekly Tab Highway races. Introduced four years ago, 
the Tab Highways have proven to be a tremendous stimulus for country racing stables as new owners constantly look for the right horses to bring to town. At first, trainers like Matt Dunn, Danny Williams and Terry Robinson dominated the highways, but nowadays the results prove that many and varied stables have learned to identify the kind of horse they need to travel down the highway. $75,000 in prize money and an assortment of race distances are making these races highly competitive and stimulating healthy betting trends. The Tab Highways are a big part of the new world of Sydney racing. Enjoying my chats with the one and only Max Whitby. Bernie Houghton also owned the famous bourbon and beefsteak, which is still there, but nothing like it was in the 1960s. Very true, John, very true. Now called the Bourbon Bar, same spot. Uh, that was a different type of business. Bernie was always looking for different concepts, but obviously along the same line. Hard, hard, fast, entertaining, safe, secure type of places, and that was more high-end high restaurant, high-volume restaurant with a famous and infamous piano bar. Yeah. International stars often stayed at the Siebel Townhouse just down the road and quickly became regulars at the Bourbon and Beefsteak. And now's your chance to drop a few names, Max. Who did you see there from the international world of show business? Some big well, names. Way back, way, way back go Burl Ives. <laughs> One Liza of my Minnelli. favourites, yeah. Liza Minnelli, Sure. Uh, Sinatra came and wouldn't wouldn't play. That's another story. Yeah. Or sing, uh, which is okay. Uh, uh, it just goes on and on. Elton John. Yeah. Billy Joel. All played, all did gigs, all got up and were part of the fabric of the Bourbon of Boostake. And one of my favourites, Max, you haven't mentioned, Shirley Bassey. I believe she was there. Shirley Bassey, so when she was at the Chevron, where I subsequently lived today, that's another story. Mm. 50 yards in the Texas Tavern, that's another story. Uh, Shirley Bassey, any of the acts that were at the Silver Spade, famous Silver Spade, invariably made their way up the road two or 300 metres to the bourbon and beefsteak. Mm. You mentioned a great old name there, Burl Ives. I think most people of our generation regarded Burl as principally a singer, you know, with big yep. hit songs like yep. Mary Ann and Pearly Shells and Itty Bitty <laughs> Tear and many, many others. But what a good dramatic actor he was. Do you remember a movie called Wind Across the Everglades? I don't remember it, but I've, you know, I've done some work on him over the years and he had, was it, he had a, a reasonably good um, second man, probably is the right way to say it, uh, acting career. Yes. You know that about that, Johnny? Yep. Oh, he was a, an A-grade actor. Yeah. Really, yeah. Now, Bernie Houghton also owned Harpoon Harry's in the city, and you became yeah. deeply entrenched in the day-to-day -day running of the whole chain, in fact. What was your role, Max? Well, I was a licensee. I was a foundational initial licensee, but, you know, statute of limitations is over. You had to be 21 to be a licensee, and I was about 19, and I got my licence. That's another story for another day, but the fact is I was a licensee, and Harpoon Harry's was a famous Sydney institution mm. and it started with a uh, lingerie Friday lunch uh, 
fashion parade, very legitimate, very yes, very fitting of the seventies, I suppose. Very classy. Some great, great people came through there. Uh, but it was a six, seven day a week business. Six lunches a, a day a, a, a week business mm. really took off. It was like the bourbon and beefsteak. They queue for hundreds of meters down towards Windy Station, all the way up to the Martin Place. Oh, it was, mm. it was uh, five buildings, three floors, and it just rocked, Johnny. It just rocked. Same model as the bourbon, good music, good food, good security. People felt comfortable. You wanted to, they wanted to get in a bit of strife, you could do that. If you wanted to behave yourself and enjoy yourself, get on the drink. That's what we did. Yeah. Well, eventually you felt the need for a change, and you went to work for a rural commodity firm called Nichols, and this gave you your very first experience with futures, and it got you in. I had a uh, maitre d' who left me to start a bullion company, and that bullion company bought a membership of the Sydney Futures Exchange, which in those days only traded cattle and wool. The principals of that firm were British, knew a bit about wool but didn't know anything about cattle. So here I am, a couple of years in the bush jackarooing, I'm the only bloke that could do work out one end of a cow to another or one end of a bull to another or whatever. So I became a half an expert and uh, that just got me going. And uh, how I got there is a long story, but the fact is James uh, Rossi was, a, uh, as I said, an ex-maitre d' and uh, we just we just found our place itself at the right time and just went, extended unbelievably and... Uh, you know, I look back and think, well, geez, I was, you know, life's been very good to me. It's been very lucky. And uh, we took the opportunities, John. In 1991, you bit the bullet and founded a company called L Key Futures Brokers. Where did that name come from? Well, I was the director of um, Deutsche Bank Australia and uh, – I decided if, uh, there was a takeover and the Germans were going to – at that stage they had 51% and they were going to take 100%. Mm. And not, uh, and I was doing pretty good things for that group after a lot of few years. Of, and uh, they said, oh, you've got to reapply for your job, as you do in the banking business. And I went, that's a bit strange, you know. I thought I was going pretty well. And mm. anyway, long story short, I decided to, to branch out on my, on my own and uh, I walked in and told my principal, I directly, he was a nice guy. Uh, very prominent businessman, still in business today. And I said, I'm going to go up my own. He said, oh, can we go with you? And I went, well, what does that mean? So they took 49% of this LK Futures Brokers. And uh, these, I'll never forget the conversation. I went home and talked about it to Jen, my late wife. And I said, uh, I'm going to go in and confirm I'll let them in because I thought it would help a small business like me have a major global bank as a partner, a minority partner in relative terms and percentages. Mm. Consequently, I went to the next day and he said, well, that's good, great, we'll take 49, three bags full, and uh, what are we going to call it? Mm. And the building that we're in, Grove, and the place, and I was just, all I could see out behind his desk was Harbour Views, mm. and I thought, key, key, low key, circular key, um, key to my success. I'm thinking key like as in a key, mm. and I thought, the model was for locals, that's the concept I was going to develop, and they were local traders, so I call it L.Key. Mm. And everyone, subsequently, out there, our keys, low key, 
it, it became quite infamous, and uh, yeah, we were very prominent. We were very high volume, and we were a big part of the history of the Sydney Futures Exchange. I'm very proud of that. LK Futures Brokers. Well, in 2005, your fortunes took a leap when you sold that company, L-Key, to ABN AMRO. And part of the deal was that you had to stay away from the market for two years. But in typical Whitby fashion, you found a way around that tricky clause. I won't get into the details, but yes, uh, my PA that's still with me today, Angela, Barbado, after uh, 24 years of loyalty and hard work, dear Ange was packing the desk up, or off our office up out the back, and we'd been. I think we'd out of business. We got paid on the Monday. I went to the. I went to Grafton on the Tuesday. We were morning Wednesday, cut Thursday. Came back Friday morning. Started spending my money. Uh, got on the drink all weekend with all my old traders, etc. Walked in Monday morning. Angela's unpacking the de- office up. Something, an incident happened. I've walked back into Angela and said, start unpacking, baby. We're back in business. See? <laughs> the blood ran out of her face, so to speak. What are yeah. you talking about? Yeah. Well, she's still <laughs> there. She's still yeah, she's there. Still she there. got over it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Max, uh, we'll bring the curtain down on segment one of our uh, chat and we'll be back with you very, very shortly and we're going to find out how you got involved in the sport of kings, the wonderful world of thoroughbred horse racing. Back with Max Whitby shortly. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress.